Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a long-expected party celebrating the Lord of the Rings films nigh 20 years hence. Usually, we work through the films, one scene at a time, but this is some other devilry. (laughs) The story of Middle-earth is deeply tied to the bonds of fellowship our characters hold, and we want to do episodes that allow us to delve greedily into them to show their quality. The city of Askelia has been reclaimed! I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Horn of Gondor, an analysis and discussion of Boromir, son of Denethor, captain of Gondor. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be going into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. From the gate of the kings the north wind rides, and past the roaring falls, and clear and cold about the tower its loud horn calls. What news from the north, O mighty wind, do you bring to me today? What news of Boromir the Bold, for he is long away? Beneath Ammon Hen I heard his cry, there many foes he fought. His cloven shield, his broken sword, they to the water brought. His head so proud, his face so fair, his limbs they laid to rest. And Raros, golden Raros falls, bore him upon its breast. O Boromir, the tower of guard shall ever northward gaze, to Raros, golden Raros falls until the end of days. Oh, that was so good. I haven't heard that like performed before, so I'm all choked up. <laughs> so that was the lament for Boromir, which, uh, Emily, what is the lament for Boromir? <laughs> so in the books, after Boromir dies, um, Aragorn um, starts to pen on the fly because he's just that cool, starts to pen a lament for Boromir. And he does two verses and then um, Legolas, who's who is standing next to Aragorn as this is happening, um, picks up and adds a verse of his own. And this is one of Legolas's verses. Um, and the last of the three hunters, Gimli, um, and what I think is one of the really affecting moments in, uh, well, one of, one of the very affecting moments of many in that chapter, um, can't bring himself to add another verse uh, to this lament for Boromir because he's so um, emotional and, and choked up about it. Um, but that verse is um, is Legolas's verse about Boromir. Yeah, <clears throat> and I do recommend uh, you can uh, YouTube lament for Boromir, and there are uh, multiple verses and people with you know possibly more pleasing voices than my own uh, performing it and doing it as more of a sing or an actual lament and not as a poem as I read it. But um, it's great. This is actually the first time I've encountered the poem, or at least when Emily put this in the show notes. So um, I really enjoyed kind of digging into it and kind of looking at some other renditions of this poem. It's um, one of the things, my favorite little jokes about um, the Lord of the Rings films is that they are the only um, movies that are based on a book where the book is a musical and the films are not. No, that's great. And I I really wish this now in retrospect had found its way in there, though. I wouldn't be shocked to hear if like this was translated to Quenya and like layered behind something musically. But um, it's a great, great little poem they got there. 
Um, and I think it's a really brilliant introduction as well to, and here is my uh, clotting uh, segue, um, to the kind of grandeur um, and magnificence of the kingdom of men. Um, and before we get into Boromir, um, we, as a character, um, I am going to give you um, an overview of my favorite people in Middle Earth, uh, which which are the men. Um, and um, I, I don't I don't do this lightly, and I don't do this just because I want to get into the people that I like the most right off the bat, but because I think knowing um, the the sort of like um, civilizational. Um, context to who Boromir is as a character, to who his people are, is is really, really crucial for understanding uh, the emotional depth uh, that is behind his character. Um, some of this we have gotten into in some of the previous episodes, like episode seven, where we talk about the Northern Kingdom. Um, but Boromir is not from the North. Um, Boromir is from the South. He is a Southern Dunedain um, and uh, and from from Gondor. Um, and I and I, um, as I often tend to lead lean on Tolkien's letters, uh, I'm going to do that again just now. Um, and this is from uh, letter 131 for anybody who's going to go back digging through. Um, and I, I I'm sure every time I say. I mentioned the letters, I say this, but, you know, if you have a few spare moments, like, definitely go digging through some of the letters, because they're quite interesting. But, uh, letter 131, Tolkien says of Gondor, But in the north Arnor dwindles, is broken into petty princedoms, and finally vanishes. The remnant of the Numenorians becomes a hidden wandering folk, and though their true line of kings of Isildur's heirs never falls, this is known only in the house of Elrond. In the south, Gondor rises to a peak of power, almost reflecting Numenor and then fades slowly to decayed Middle Age, a kind of proud, venerable, but increasingly impotent Byzantium. The watch upon Mordor is relaxed. The pressure of the Easterlings and Southrons increases. The line of kings fails, and the last city of Gondor, Minas Tirith, is ruled by hereditary stewards. And that, bar from painting, you know, the kind of classically bleak picture of the political landscape of Middle-earth, is also just, I think, a really, really fascinating way to kind of intro who Boromir is because he is this proud and venerable figure um, but he is also uh, the sole representative at least at the start of this impotent and dying and decaying civilization and 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 he has this really unique and interesting task where he has to be this very uh, great and noble and bold to quote the lament figure while also signifying everything that has fallen into or is falling into darkness that Aragorn as king uh, is now you know rising or returning to to begin to correct um and this also brings in I think one of the uh, more interesting little political tidbits and uh, I think as we've covered in, <laughs> in some of the other episodes uh Tolkien is not uh the greatest political mind ever um, and this is certainly not Game of Thrones where political intrigue is necessary but um I am someone who's quite interested in this stuff. So um, I'm going to talk briefly about the stewards of Gondor. Um, and uh, the steward that we know so far is Denethor. Um, and um, he is the, I'm going to say 26th, and then I'm going to get it wrong. Um, I'm pretty sure he's the 26th steward of Gondor. Um, and uh, the stewardship um, is not actually something that only came about after Yarner, uh, yeah, Yarner um, goes and dies. He's the last king of Gondor. Um, the stewards 
actually exist um, alongside the kings for quite a substantial period of Gondor's history. They're basically prime ministers. They do a lot of the politicking for the kings so that the kings can kind of be these happy-go-lucky figureheads um, throwing themselves into stupid battles they shouldn't be throwing themselves into. Um, but after Yarnor, who is the final king of Gondor, um, gets in a dick-measuring context contest with the witch king of Angmar, runs into me in a smorgle to try and... Uh, you know, uh, box him, uh, bare knuckle box him, and obviously disappears and is never heard from again. Uh, the steward, Martel Vronway, um, takes over as uh, the first of the hereditary stewards of uh, Gondor, or sorry, the first of the ruling stewards of Gondor. Um, and uh, they, they are, I think, fascinating for me specifically because uh, the line Gondor has no king, Gondor needs no king, is not actually a line in the books. Um, it's a it's a movie invention, but I think it's absolutely phenomenal um, because it's totally accurate. Or, wait, hang on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's totally accurate. You don't have to think it's totally accurate. Nobody has to think it's totally accurate, but I think it's totally accurate. Um, and I think it's totally accurate because the kings of Gondor, um, and I would also say the kings of Arnor, are super messy um, and not super hot um, at, at like ruling their kingdom, kind of the one thing that they're meant to do. Um, and there are, um, throughout the kind of kingships of Gondor in particular, there's a lot of like interpersonal strife, a lot of civil wars. There's like a kin strife where, um, oh, actually, this one, I'm looking at my notes now and I'm like, why have I made the kin strife section so big? And this is why, because I have an agenda. Uh, the kin strife is like a civil war in Gondor um, and it is quite bloody and it, it's the reason that Osgiliath is ruined and Gondor loses a lot of its like outlying territory. Um, lots of bad things happen. What's important though is it's triggered because King Valakar marries a woman of the north um, and the northern peoples are kind of like a, well not kind of, they are a precursor people to the Rohirrim um, and the Gondorim um, are fucked off about this, um, and I'm going to explain in a couple minutes probably why that is in more detail, but they're really not happy about it. Um, and there's a huge civil war because Valakar has gone and married this, north, this woman of the north, and their son is on his way to becoming king, and once he becomes king, uh, there's a civil war, and it is brutal, and it kills lots of people, and it brings on a plague that destroys um, a massive amount of the population. It's really messy. It's really awful. And this is why I brought this in. My side note is Faramir is off screen laughing his ass off at this because he also married a woman of the north, and there was no problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, ha ha ha. Um, but all of this to say, there's a lot of strife, and there's a lot of like political drama and trauma during the rule of the kings um whereas during the rule of the stewards um there really isn't the same amount of drama the stewards are um far from being like quiet and conservative they're actually quite bold um we'll talk about this uh, throughout varying points in this podcast but the the stewards are actually the ones who establish the the, the kingdom of rohan um, and who give the rohirrim the land and the title um and and in doing so establish like a permanent ally for themselves in the west um that is not something that is like a conservative kind of backed away from power that is done by a, a steward and a tradition of stewardship that is willing to be quite forthright about what its power is um, so they're not just like stewarding over a slow decline they are being quite proactive in what's going on and and you know um, without the Rohirrim Gondor would have fallen at the Battle of the Pelennor Field so it is quite a significant a historically significant thing and um, so when Boromir in the movie gets uh, mad about the existence of Aragorn and says you know Gondor needs no king fair enough man fair enough 
And this is oh no. Um, so my one other thing uh, that I'm gonna my agenda here, um, and we will get more into this uh, in a later character episode. Spoilers. Um, but one thing I want to read from is my favorite chapter in the two towers. Um, and this is the, the chapter that is like dedicated to historians, I would say, um, and, uh, uh, establishes, um, my favorite character as the patron saint of historians. But, but this, this little bit I think is really, really brilliant. Um, and this is talking about the state of Gondor throughout the past 700 or so years. Death was ever present because the Numenorians still, as they had in their old kingdom and so lost it, hungered after endless life unchanging. Kings made tombs more splendid than houses of the living and counted old names in the rules of their descent dearer than the names of sons. Childless lords sat in aged halls, musing on heraldry. In secret chambers, withered men compounded strong elixirs, or in high cold towers asked questions of the stars. And the last king of the line of Anarian had no heir. But the stewards were wiser and more fortunate. Wiser, for they recruited the, the, of the strength of our people from the sturdy folk of the sea coast, and from the hardy mountaineers of Aridnum race. And they made a truce with the proud peoples of the north, who often had assailed us, men of fierce valor, but our king from afar off, unlike the wild Easterlings or the cruel, cruel hired dream. And that is an assessment of why uh, the kings were fucking idiots and the stewards were not. Um, and I think, I think, I think, I think I've done my tick box here of why uh, Boromir is totally right to mouth off like he did. And so that's the Gondor bit. Um, and then within Gondor, there are a whole bunch of fiefdoms, and I'm not going to go through all of them here. But one of the significant ones is Dol Amroth. Um, and Dol Amroth is, um, well, it's a lot of things. And if you go digging through like the books or the lore, it will get a bit confusing. Dol Amroth is three things at once. It is a city. Um, it is a castle in that city, and it is also the uh, like titled land for the Prince of Dol Amroth. And the Prince of Dol Amroth also sees Balfalis, which is the coastal area in the south of Gondor. It is, I would call it probably close to like an autonomous region of Gondor. Um, it still pays tribute um, and is uh, 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 like a, a constituent part of the Kingdom of Gondor, but because it is a, a princedom and there are not really princedoms in Gondor besides uh, uh, Dol Amroth until Athelion is turned into a princedom, it has a significant amount of sway um, and it's kind of left to itself. Um, there's a whole fascinating history there. Uh, like Dol Amroth is established by Imrazor the Numenorian, who is one of the first guys off the boat with Elendil, um, who marries or depending on the story, either marries or doesn't marry, and there's some questionable uh, sexual politics involved there. Uh, the Sylvan Elf Mithrelis, uh, the Sylvan Elves are like Legolas's people, um, and the princes of Dol Amroth are, uh, they're descended from both an elf uh, and the Numenorians, which also kind of within the weird <laughs> racial hierarchy of Middle-earth gives them like this like turbocharged power. Um, all of this to say, um, Boromir's line is in most ways every bit as ancient and noble as Aragorn's. Um, he is not some lesser man, not some usurper, not just some guy that they picked up off the street. He is absolutely on level with Aragorn. Um, and unlike Aragorn, as movie Boromir highlights, his ancestors didn't fuck up everything repeatedly. Um, so he is certainly right in kind of coming to this with what like we in the movie see as a bit of hubris, but is like contextually just fair chat really.
Yeah, no, this definitely has re-kind of contextualized how I feel about Boromir, and honestly, just rereading the books recently has done that, um, but it is presented one way in the films, or you're supposed to take a stance with the way Boromir is presented, uh, where I do think it's a little more nuanced and not as clear-cut as they make it in the film. Um, I do want to also just chime in that you are correct, Denethor was the 26th uh, steward, um, so woohoo for woo-hoo. that. <laughs> And one thing I feel like I do need to add here, like as a disclaimer, is a lot of this episode is um, is is based in um, me digging not just through Lord of the Rings, but also the Unfinished Tales, also through like the various histories of Middle Earth and peoples of Middle Earth books. Um, the way that Boromir is written in Fellowship of the Ring, um, I would say, is also kind of a hard. He's like hard done by in in the text. I don't think Tolkien intended the readers at first glance to necessarily have this level of sympathy with Boromir. Um, I, I certainly got out of my way to feel sympathy for him. Um, and, and actually, um, Tolkien, um, for both Boromir and Denethor, later goes back and adds all of this context because he starts to feel like the readers are not feeling as much sympathy for uh, Boromir and Denethor as he would have liked and tries to soften them up with context. So if you're going through the movies or you're reading the first book and you are not like feeling this like gut like instinct to defend Boromir that's totally fine that's totally normal like this is this is brainworms level of like <laughs> finding additional context so it's not like a you're not being judged by anyone if you, that is like not your first instinct that is totally legit <laughs> Yeah, we are people who have roughly made about 20 hours of podcast on the first hour, hour and a half of the first Lord of the Rings film. So we're definitely spending a lot more time playing with these and turning these ideas over in our heads, uh, finding new ways. So um, the surface or immediate reaction you may have is not necessarily a wrong one either. We just have a lot of brain poisoning here. (laughs) Yes, yes. So uh, we'll give some brief character history, some, you know, key dates and uh, familial information on Boromir before we dive into the meteor stuff. Uh, He was born in the third age of the year 2978. And his family, uh, the people you may not know because they weren't really depicted in the films, are his mother, Vinduilus, who is the daughter of Adrahil, Prince of Dol Amroth, which Emily just went over, and sister to Amrahil, who is the Prince of Dol Amroth, also, or after, I presume. Yeah. Uh, and then Ivrinuel, who died when Boromir was 10. Uh, and then uh, characters we do know are Denethor, who is his father, son of Echthelion II, steward of Gondor, and all-around great bloke, <laughs> Peter, <laughs> um, which uh, Emily editorialized there for us. But um, I agree with that sentiment. And then uh, his brother, Faramir, who is... You know, kind of a pain in the arse, and I think uh, is that patron saint of historians that Emily constantly refers to. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so this is fun because, um, again, these are like not people. Not only are they mostly not mentioned in the films, um, they're also barely mentioned in the books. Uh, Emrahil gets his like outing in uh, Return of the King. He's the one who brings Faramir's body back after uh, the disastrous um, Osgiliath defense. Uh, he uh, is also one of the first people 
able to like lend his uh, credence and legitimacy to Aragorn, which helped clear the way for Aragorn becoming king. Um, besides that, Fenduilus gets a mention when uh, Eowyn gets her starry mantle. Uh, Adrahil, I think, is literally only mentioned in the appendices, um, and Avreniel as well, I'm pretty sure. And there's also a note that like Denethor has a whole bunch of sisters, um, but they're not named either. So this is like the level of like obscurity that we're dealing with with these facts. Um, but uh, there are a couple of like, key things that I really want to hit on uh, with, um, well, yeah, with, with Boromir. Um, and, and some of these are going to come back uh, time and time again. So I feel like it's really important to get these out here just now. Um, but the, the first one is um, the relationship of um, well, the relationship between Boromir and the Rohirrim um, in uh, Fellowship, and we haven't gotten to this yet in our coverage, but we will. Um, Boromir uh, repeatedly emphasizes uh, the validity and uh, sensibility of going via the Gap of Rohan uh, to get to, uh, well, to get to Minas Tirith or to get to Mordor. Um, and uh, Gandalf and Aragorn are like, Absolutely not. That's too close to Saruman, and maybe that's fair, maybe it isn't, I don't know. We'll pass judgment on that later. Um, but Boromir is a character in both the films and the books, um, who is closely, closely, closely identified with the Rohirrim. On, on the face of it, this doesn't really mean much. Um, like, it, it's cool. Lots of people are associated with countries they're not really from. Uh, I don't know why my brain just there went Hitler. Um, Hitler is obviously <laughs> Austrian and associated with Germany. There are lots of other guys who are like that. So there, there it is. I'm not comparing Boromir to Hitler. Oh, sweet God. Um, but, you know, anyways, what a horrible way to say that. Uh <laughs> Jesus God. Uh, well, so why is this significant then? Well, uh, there's a, as as I've kind of alluded to several times, uh, there's this weird racial hierarchy in Middle Earth, um, and I want to like get this out here right now. And um, it is not a racial hierarchy in the ways. Of, well, speaking of Hitler, in the ways of like the Nuremberg Laws or uh, you know the one drop policy in the U.S. or the Three Fifths Compromise. When I say racial hierarchy, um, it is for the most part. Uh, a context-neutral invocation of the word race. It literally just means different groups of people. There is then, like, like, like uh, the Rohirrim are all described as white and blonde and blue-eyed, um, and that does not inherently put them at the top of the hierarchy. In fact, they are in the middle-link tier. So there is not as close of a relationship there, not to say that there is no relationship, but there is not as close of a relationship between the like moral hierarchy that's going on here and white supremacist, white supremacist hierarchies. Now that I've gotten that disclaimer out of the way, um, there is a hierarchy, <laughs> um, and it is based on uh, two of my uh, most and least favorite things in the world, morals and history. Um, and there are three kind of racial categories or like moral categories for the various peoples of Middle Earth. Um, the lowest rung um, are the men of darkness, um, and those are the Dunlandings, the Easterlings, the Hardream. Um, and they are the men who, in some of the early skirmishes against Sauron, um, sided with Sauron. Um, and so they are considered the men of darkness because they have literally aligned themselves with the dark. Um, there is obviously a racialized component to this because why is it that Tolkien uh, chose the Easterlings and the so Southrons to be the ones who aligned with uh, Saurad? Hmm, big question mark there. But on the face of it, it is they're, they're, the reason that they suck is allegedly not because they're described as like looking Asian or looking Middle Eastern. It's because they aligned with Sauron. 
We'll unpack that one at a later date. (laughs) (laughs) The men of Twilight are the next one, um, next rung up. um, And they are the Rohirrim and the men of Dale. So if you've seen the Hobbit, uh, the Hobbit, um, the the Dale folk bards people um, are alongside the Rohirrim. um, And they're in this tier because they were kind of agnostic to the fight against Sauron. Like they would occasionally intervene, but usually only when it like... uh, trespassed on their territorial concerns this changes in uh oh lord i'm gonna say it's like 2740 the year 2740 i think of the third age i'm gonna get that wrong i'm gonna get that totally wrong but uh when the rohirrim come to gondor's aid at the crossings of poros the battle of the crossings of poros um against the haradrim in south athelion and then they swear an oath to the steward carrion and are uh then given the kingdom of rohan to govern as their own and kind of start to uh distinguish themselves slightly higher above this like men of twilight rank but they are also not descended from the Numenorians. um so they never fully went west um they never really took a side in this fight against sauron and morgoth so they're kind of like morally middling and then there's the men of the west slash um and this one always makes me giggle the high men (laughs) Um, and these are the descendants of numenor and um they are considered morally better not just because they're of the west but because they went west and then helped to fight against sauron so it is a hierarchy that is morally based historically contingent uh, but also has some uh questionable ethics Um, (laughs) but uh given that uh hierarchy is then interesting that boromir is continually associated with uh rohan in the books and in the films because there is this kind of moral component to it and boromir in some ways um is this, like represents the like decline of Gondor and here again I'm gonna go to Faramir and I'm really sorry for this it's just that like all of this context literally comes from his like 10,000 word monologue in the two towers and so it's like hard to find it put as beautifully um, anywhere else um, it's not just because I am a simp it is more I am a simp because of this nevertheless um god this episode oh boy um, <laughs> so the quote is this um, yet now, if the Rohirrim are grown in some ways more like to us, and here he means the men of Gondor, enhanced in arts and in gentleness, we too have become more like to them, and can scarcely claim any longer the title high. <laughs> uh, we are become middlemen of the twilight, but with memory of other things. For as the Rohirrim do, we now love war and valor as things good in themselves, both a sport and an end. And though we still hold that a warrior should have more skills and knowledge than only the craft of weapons and slayings, we esteem a warrior nonetheless above men of other crafts. Such is the need of our days. So even was my brother, Boromir, a man of prowess, and for that he was accounted the best man in Gondor. And very valiant indeed he was. No heir of Menas Tereth has for long years been so hardy in toil, so onward in battle, or blown a mightier note on the great horn." So that is Faramir's assessment of his brother um, and also his brother's relationship to this like racial hierarchy and that um, Boromir is um, both this sort of link between the like middling morality of the Rohirrim and Gondor, um, but also as Faramir like contextualizes an absolutely necessary figure because they are in a time of war and they kind of do need these people of um, slightly more uh, cynical morality, I guess, if that makes sense. <laughs> No, I think it definitely does. Um, and one thing I'm kind of picking out, and there are many horns in 
uh, the, the world of Middle Earth and especially in the Lord of the Rings films. But I do like how they're probably most associated with both Boromir and Rohan between um, the Horn of Helm hammer hand that they blow at the end of Helm's Deep. And then, of course, when the Rohirrim arrive at Pelennor Fields, I don't think that's supposed to be an intentional connection. But now that I'm kind of seeing this as you lay out the argument, um, having Boromir, he's almost also clad in a red that reminds me more of the Rohirrim outfits of the two towers. Again, I don't know how much of this is intentional, but now that this kind of gateway has been opened, my brain is jumping to a million things connecting Boromir and Rohan, um, both in the text and in film. Oh my God, no, absolutely. And I'm so, so glad that you picked that up because I'm literally scrolling through my phone notes just now because I've saved something from, here it is, uh, from the Siege of Minister, this is, I think the chapter. I'm literally reading off this, my, this off my the notes app on my phone, so I'm not a certain verse and chapter here. But it's, and in that very moment, away in some courtyard of the city, a cock crowed. Shrill and clear he crowed, wrecking nothing of wizardry or war, welcoming only the morning that in the sky far above, the shadows of death was coming with the, with the dawn. And, as if in answer, there came from far away another note. Horns, horns, horns. In dark Mindaloo's sides they dimly echoed, great horns of the north wildly blowing. Rohan had come at last. And that is my favorite, 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 favorite bit of writing in Return of the King. Um, and that is it. You're totally right. You're totally spot on. The horns of Rohan and, and Boromir being so intimately connected. Yes, I totally hadn't made that connection before. I'm absolutely delighted at that. <laughs> so I think this is this, this, this horn chat haha, um, is a great uh, segue into the other really important thing in Boromir's life and something that I think he symbolizes more than any other character, which is the war. Um, and it is important, I think, um, to, well, it's important to me to give context to the war in Gondor because uh, the book is not especially good at giving this context until you get to the Two Towers and Return of the King um, and the movies don't give it at all. And um, that's not a fault at all. Um, like that, that is totally reasonable and um, I just think it's like quite interesting to have this context because I think it makes a lot of the emotional beats of both the movies and the books um a lot <laughs> a lot more difficult to stomach um but in a good way um so I'm gonna do like a really very quick history recap of the war in Gondor over the last 70 years um 70 years before uh 3018 when the um Council of Elrond is convened. Sauron returns to Mordor after being ousted from Dol Guldur, which if you've seen the Hobbit movies or read the Hobbit book, you know basically what goes on there. Um, during this time, after uh, Sauron returns to Mordor, um, Athelion, which is the strip of land that um, backs up the Ethelil Duath, which is like the mountains that create Mordor's border, start to be cleared uh, because of the orcs. And these are, these are clearances. Um, like uh, some of the kind of fans on Tumblr call them the Athelic clearances. They're never really given that name officially by Tolkien, but but people are cleared. A huge number of people are cleared, are made refugees and sent to like Lebanon and Lamedon uh, and Minas Tirith and Anorian, uh, cleared out of Athelion. Um, and the rangers of Athelion are left in their stead to basically monitor the situation and to, to harry um, the orcs uh, of Mordor. At the same time, there are a couple um, pretty significant battles um, at Pelargir, which in the films we see as the place where Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas uh, become briefly become pirates, um, and the Corsairs of Umbar, which is a region 
due south of Gondor, uh, sail up the Anduin um, and try to take Pelargier. Um, this is where Aragorn, when he's like cavorting around Gondor as Throngil, uh, makes his name because he for, uh, forces back the Corsairs uh, several times. Um, and this is also significant because uh, Denethor was kept back uh, in Minas Tirith and not allowed by his father, the Stuartic Valley II, to go effectively make his name at Pelargir in this battle. And therefore, Aragorn as Sorongil gets all the credit, and that starts to kind of build up this like chafing, interpersonal chafing between uh, Denethor and uh, Aragorn slash Thorongil. Um, and that is, I like, I cannot stress it enough. That is literally just information from like two sentences in the appendices. That is really not something you absolutely need to know, but I think it's like a little bit of cool uh, personal context for these two uh, noble and fascinating characters. Um, and then there's the south of Ithilien, um, and, uh, or the south of Gondor, more accurately, uh, which is called Harandor. If you've ever seen uh, a map of Middle-earth, you'll see like this really funny tag. It's like, um, South Gondor, now a desert and debatable land, uh, which is just a weird way of saying that it's basically been taken over by the Hierodream. Um, but Gondor starts to lose that, and it's quite like a bitter loss for them. Um, that mostly happens 30 to 40, well, that, that mostly concludes 30 to 40 years before, uh, our story kicks off, um, 150 days exactly before Boromir arrives at the Council of Elrond, and um, there's a massive battle at Osgiliath. Um, it is not the battle that happens in the Two Towers Extended Edition, and I hate that battle and will not acknowledge its legitimacy. Um, it is instead a far more interesting battle where the Nine, the Nazgul, are trying to cross over um, through Ithilien into the rest of Gondor, presumably on their way to grab Frodo. Um, and uh, the Gondorim, being the first line of defense for Middle-earth against the forces of Sauron, put up a ridiculously... Uh, strong um, and good defense fight um, and blow up the only bridge uh, in Osgiliath, which means after they've blown up this bridge, the only potential way to cross uh, from Ithilien into the rest of Gondor slash Middle-earth is at Kyra Andros um, until, of course, um, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields when uh, Sauron's people built boats uh which is dead funny that the gondor lot didn't just think of that um but <laughs> nevertheless bridge gone a huge battle on the bridge uh, there are only four survivors from the bridge um one of those survivors is boromir um he only survives because he has to jump and swim um another one is faramir and then there are two others um so Within a week, uh, or sorry, within three weeks of this massive battle where uh, Gondor has been properly invaded for the first time in a very, very long time, um, and where uh, Boromir has just been at a battle that has seen uh, hundreds of soldiers uh, mowed down, of which he is only one of four survivors, uh, Boromir gets on a horse and rides to uh, first Tharbad, and his horse dies at Tharbad, and then walks on foot to Rivendell um, on literally on the wings of a dream. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, the, 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 the dream is kind of like famous now. It's the seek for the sword that is broken. It went first to Faramir and Faramir ignored it because he's a moron. And then it went to Boromir. Um, and in this dream, uh, Boromir slash Faramir commanded this. 
um, seek for the sword that was broken in Imladris it dwells. There shall be there shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand. For a Sealder's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. Um, so they're given this premonition, and Faramir ignores it, and Boromir doesn't. Um, and Boromir walks for 150 days to get to Rivendell um, on in the immediate aftermath of this horrifying battle um, and quite terrifying territorial incursion by Mordor into Gondor. So no wonder he's grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> the other interesting part about this dream is that that is the only invitation, um, and it's not really an invitation, that the kingdoms of men get to the Council of Elrond. Um, Elrond does not invite the men. Uh, he does not extend an invitation to Gondor, who are quite literally the front lines of defense um, against Mordor. The only reason they know to come is because some outside force um, there's like a lot of speculation with like Tolkien fans and Tolkien scholars about who exactly sent the sent the dream to Faramir and then Boromir. It's it yeah it doesn't really matter. It's maybe one of the Valar. Um, but if they hadn't been sent that dream, uh, the men uh, would have had no actual representation uh, besides Aragorn, who hasn't actually ruled over anything uh, ever um, at the Council of Elrond. So. Boromir showing up and feeling a bit grumpy, <laughs> really fair enough, because um, the elves have not been exactly forthcoming in their hospitality. We're going to get to the Council of Elrond in our next episode, but the context in the films is very much that it seems like Elrond has called all these various peoples together, whereas it's kind of all these people were on their own little errands, and it just so happened to kind of line up that all these people were able to relay all these stories and figure out what was all going on. Um, so it's like almost a completely different context because one thing I had thought when watching the movies the first time or specifically the two towers is like, why wasn't anyone from Rohan invited to the Council of Elrond? But now having the knowledge that really no men besides Aragorn, who was just already there, were invited, I think it just makes that make a lot more sense to me knowing all that context. Yeah. And I think there is like definitely like a lot of like minor, not minor, but like interesting politics there in like who is deemed worthy. Um, and uh, the Rohirrim, uh, I suspect, and you know, I, there's no way for me to prove this, but I suspect even if Elrond had sent uh, an invitation to Gondor, I suspect he would not have sent one uh, to the Rohirrim. Um, and I think that is definitely like related to this kind of like moral hierarchy thing he has going on, um, which is, you know, undermined in a lot of ways by the fact that it is the Rohirrim that save save the day at, <laughs> at the Pelennor. But, you know, there you go. Yeah, if I was going to try to headcanon something to make sense, um, you could maybe start uh, thinking about Saruman maybe having captured the minds of the King of Rohan, um, which is something we do see in the Two Towers. So perhaps they were a little too close to danger to uh, try to invite directly, but that's just trying to make a headcanon out of it all. I don't think that's textually supported in any real way. Yeah, well, this is this is one of the other kind of interesting things with um, with trying to kind of reconstruct a lot of these characters is there's not a huge amount of information on any one of them. And so, like, as you like try and piece together these timelines for all these characters, I think Boromir is kind of one of the easier ones to do this with because there are so many... Um, like like signposts throughout the text that assign him a location at, and and like a, a certain moral or political stance at various points throughout the 41 years of his life. Um, a lot of the other ones you don't really get that with, so you're having to go through and be like, okay, well, this character is here at this point, um, and he's here at this point and, you know, uh, explains 
you know, 20 years later that he believes this thing when he was there. Like, do we really believe that? What's the like political, uh, like background around this event that he's present at? Or what are we really thinking? He's like, what are all of his like fellow elves or fellow dwarves actually thinking at this point? It's a lot of recreation. Um, that like I find quite fun because it's quite close to what I do, like as, as a historian, but, um, it takes a lot of work. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it takes a lot of work and a lot of guesswork. Uh, so it's not exactly a, a pure science here. <laughs> And to go back to uh, Boromir and the horns, um, uh, which is ending up one of, I mean, it's obviously quite a significant symbol for him throughout the books, but I feel like I never really noticed how significant it was. Anyways, uh, it, I'm just really delighted at that Rohan um, comparison now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go, go sit, sit with that for a long time. Um, but as the Fellowship sets out um, from Rivendell, there is this really remarkable uh, character moment um, where Boromir blows the horn of gondor as they're setting out um and aragorn is like what the fuck dude this is a secret mission why are you blowing a horn um and boromir basically says i've never done anything in secret um i've been facing down uh, the full force of uh mordor my entire life and um, let them know that i'm coming let them know that i'm coming to destroy them um and i, I will not do it in silence and aragorn is like okay like that's gonna get you killed but okay um and i think that is just like a really really beautiful insight into boromir um and even if you take it in like a value neutral sense uh where he's just being confident about what he's doing um it is quite revealing (laughs) yeah no i think it's one of my favorite moments for boromir just in the fact i totally I am one who tends to go as a thief in the night. I like to slip out back doors, disappear without people knowing. Um, That's just kind of who I am. So I have a lot of uh, respect for someone who is always upfront and will stare down danger as opposed to avoid it. Obviously, that is not the mission of the fellowship. So um, you can say he's kind of twisting what they're supposed to be doing. But um, I side with the sentiment here. Um, and I just think the Nazgul are too far down river to hear the horn. So I think it's okay in the long run. Yeah, for sure. It gives me big anxiety because I, yeah, I'm also like a an Irish goodbye kind of person. Um, so this is like every time I read that in the book, I'm like wincing. I'm like, oh, dude, don't. <laughs> but yeah, oh, give him credit, I guess. Um, and I think it's also interesting because it's such a contrast to the way in which he is like set forth from the story. Um, and I think Boromir in particular is really interesting because his presence is never really gone. Um, he comes up time and time again throughout the next two books uh well book and nine tenths of a book after he dies at the start of the two towers um but he's sent away in a boat um the three hunters um obey him in his various fineries and traffics of war in a boat and send him down the river anduin down the falls of raros um and it is quite a quiet uh not fully peaceful but like it's it's not the same sort of pomp and circumstance and royal funeral that you'd be expecting for someone so noble and so valiant it really is just a quiet warrior's death um and you know you compare that to his entrance and and everything about his character and it is fitting in some ways but it's also like deeply deeply tragic in in others yeah it, it definitely sticks out with uh say how theoden is treated when he falls at pelinor fields um, because I'm used to, sorry, the film pacing where it's just like, we got the battle of Pelennor fields and all of a sudden we're kind of on our way to the battle of the black gate. Um, but there's definitely a huge pause in between those two battles and the, um, 
books because, you know, there's the whole House of the Healing stuff, but there's also um, the goodbyes to uh, Theoden. And I feel like uh, Boromir, in you know, in comparison, has a much, much smaller and quieter send-off than um, other people. And, of course, Theoden was a king, so um, make of that what you will. Yeah. Um and in the notes after this uh, brief character bio section, um, I because I was trying to set up a template for all of our character episodes, I've just got an after the war bit, and it's just that scream crying cat. Um, and I was gonna try and find a, a sound effect to express my like anger and sadness at Boromir not living, um, but I don't I don't think I can do that. So I don't think I could find anything that like. Short of an actual Nazgul shriek, uh, there's not a sound effect that comes close enough. So I think when this episode comes out, I'm going to post that cat about a million times on our Instagram. So and so you all truly understand the depth of my desolation at this. <laughs> so as the less learned or read of the Lord of the Rings stuff and fandom compared to you, are there any compelling like alternate universe takes about Boromir surviving and what may have happened or what direction Aragorn might have gone from here. Um, is that anything you've dived into yourself? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, it is quite hard. Um, so this is quite a popular genre of like, um, uh, what if like AU sort of attempt, um, for Tolkien fans. Um, there's a lot that goes into it, um, in terms of like how, like what would have had to happen for Boromir to have survived um as in like how would he have uh not would he, like would he have not fallen to the the power of the ring would frodo have broken the fellowship earlier uh you know does he somehow survive <laughs> six seven arrow wounds does he have a mithril shirt of his own um, but one of the kind of common threads uh for all of these like alternate takes on you know, what if, what would have happened, um, is that there is a, a greater emphasis on um, on the role that the Rohirrim play. Um, and one of the really interesting takes, and now I'm struggling to remember who specifically did it. I think it's it's quite an old one. In, in my head, I'm seeing like the, the page that I read it, and I think it's like a live journal page or, or something quite dated now. Um, but it basically talks about how Boromir had to die where he did because anything short of that and bringing him back into contact with, for example, Theoden um, or even Aomer would have played up their worst habits um, and would have, and we'll get into the Theoden problem later, uh, no doubt, but um, in, in the books, Theoden is as he is, not because of some magic spell, but because he has let his pride get the best of him um, and he only hears what he wants to be told. Um, and Boromir also kind of has that habit. Um, and putting Theoden and Boromir together may have kind of compelled a lot of the antagonism um, and a lot of Theoden's worst instincts um, and may have either gotten Theoden killed earlier in battle um, or may have had a slightly less strategically sound decision making vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the semi-retreat to Helm's Deep um, or uh, who uh, takes charge in Edoras um, in his stead because in the books it's Eowyn who uh, takes up the the mantle, I guess, of steward uh, when Theoden and Eomer go to, to the Hornburg to Helm's Deep. There's a lot of this sort of stuff um, in the more more optimistic takes that see Boromir survive the war. Um, lots of people are not keen on having him as the steward. Um, it's quite funny because uh, anytime you get these really optimistic Boromir survives the 
uh, war takes, um, people will do these uh, incredible mental gymnastics to be like, and somehow Faramir ends up as the steward anyways, and Boromir ends up as something a little less cerebral, um, which is like <laughs> bimbo rights, I guess. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, because Boromir is such a microcosm of uh, like a lot of the failings of the the various like mannish kingdoms and they're like alleged um, moral like averages or medians or whatever um a lot of people kind of struggle to work that in um and work in his survival um and this like rebirth of the manish kingdoms without having like to borrow like gramsci like this weird like um interregnum period where they either like lose sense of like what the kingdoms are entirely and it kind of goes into like something so out of character that it's not really worth reading um or uh just kind of putting Boromir off to the side in the little box and being like, we're just going to let him play with his wooden swords for, for forever. Yeah. Um, I personally don't go in for a ton of AU stuff. Um, no, no, you know, no shame on anyone who does or who creates that kind of stuff. I think it's great. Um, but it's like, this is the death of Boromir is like one of those, like, I don't know, integral focal points of the story where things just spin out from it. And especially in the films, because they kind of couple it with uh, the de- uh, Frodo's departure from the fellowship. So uh, it is one of those things that's like, you change that, you kind of change the whole story. Um, yeah. It's not like this minor change that, um, you know, you can kind of play with off on a side thread off away from the main plot. Um, it is absolutely just a thing that defines the story. And that's part of the reason it's made the climax of this first film that we're discussing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is also one of these things, you know, as we've been talking about quite a lot on the podcast is like these um, choices, like narrative versus uh, like external logic. Because another one of these like really popular what if scenarios is, well, you know, Faramir has sent the dream first. Faramir has sent the dream like three times and ignores it every time. And then it's sent to Boromir when whoever's sending the dream realizes that Faramir is ignoring it. Well, what if Faramir had gone to Rivendell instead? And what would that have changed? And like, it is a really fascinating thought exercise and definitely one of my like favored thought exercises in terms of Lord of the Rings. But as you say, just because it seems logical to us as the audience doesn't mean it makes a good story. (laughs) And like narratively, it actually kind of sucks because like Faramir is like too good and Boromir is like too suited to being a tragic Shakespearean tragic character that like taking him out of that like tragic, tragic trajectory um, just makes him kind of boring. Like he has to have this, this tragedy. He has to have this death um, because it makes the story worth reading. Yeah, no, thank you for indulging my brief AU digression. Uh, do you want to go over some of like the book or meta history behind Boromir while we're here? Yeah. So Boromir is kind of interesting because um, he is one of the few characters that uh, kind of remains unchanged uh, from draft one through to the publication of Lord of the Rings. Um, he is definitely, Tolkien puts a lot of his time and energy into making sure that um, Boromir uh, embodies a lot of Tolkien's critiques about the world in which Tolkien was living in terms of like the like um, valorization of war, the emphasis on this sort of glory hunting, um, this failure to reckon with the causes of World War I um, and the like, insufficient intellectualism i guess would be the way to say that of the british public um and british aristocrats um after world war one um, and during world war Two and the, the sort of interwar period um so boromir uh 
is basically uh, uh, not an untouched character, but he is in draft one. He <laughs> he is there fully fleshed, um, and the things that change around him um, in subsequent drafts are quite minor, uh, which is not something you get with a lot of the other characters. Um, that said, uh, Tolkien does kind of have to go back after the publication of The Lord of the Rings um, and work to give a lot of this additional context to Boromir because he was very keenly aware of the uh, audience perception of um, Boromir and of his father, Denethor, and was uh, slightly fucked off about it and thought that people were being too harsh on uh, Boromir and Denethor and and weren't giving them um, as much credit for the amount of shit they had to go through, essentially, that led to them behaving like that. So um, he adds in quite a bit in the appendices and in the Unfinished Tales. Um, In the Unfinished Tales, he actually gets a mention in the... Uh, Battle of the Fords of Eisen, I believe, but then it also in the um, uh, history of Galadriel and Celeborn, um, and that is mostly uh, a contextual note talking about how fucking long of a walk it is from Tharbad in the like southwest of Middle Earth to uh, to Rivendell, and how horrible of a time uh Boromir had walking for 150 days straight after he loses his horse to get to Rivendell and that is mostly to give like context to to Boromir's emotional state um but there is also kind of this like beefing up of the um like family and political context um behind uh Gondor um which Boromir is meant to be the symbol of so that people would stop just being like Boromir's a dick um and start being like yeah actually like it's quite understandable uh that someone who has like um not traumatized necessarily but someone who's been like forged in this crucible of like a war-torn environment might behave this way and how that is not necessarily his fault um is more of like a systematic thing systemic thing um but you know, obviously also not uh, like an inherent or an inevitable thing because we see his brother, his younger brother, um, as someone that Tolkien holds up as like this ideal of how you should respond to living in a shitty society. (laughs) Uh, I actually kind of find that interesting that uh, Tolkien retroactively kind of wanted to make Boromir a little softer, uh, for lack of a better word, just because I almost feel like they kind of do that with the uh, extended editions of The Two Towers and Return of the Kings. Not like either intentionally or in a big sweeping manner, but we're going to talk about how he's adapted for film here in a couple minutes. And he is definitely played as more complicated and perhaps villainous or at least antagonistic in The Fellowship of the Ring. But when we do catch him again in the extended editions of Two Towers and Return of the King, he's generally presented as pretty much a straight up good, uh, which, you know, you can make sense of it within the narrative in a million ways. But um, it's almost like uh, looking back in the other two movies, it's just a very positive look on Boromir as opposed to a little more complicated or um, antagonistic one we get in The Fellowship. Yeah, and I think this is interesting as well, and obviously we'll talk about this more in a second, but I think um, in the books, there really isn't a huge amount about Boromir's relationship to his brother. Um, Boromir himself mentions Faramir but once um, in the Council of Elrond to say, uh, he and I survived blowing up this bridge, um, and then basically never mentions him again. Um, Faramir mentions him uh, in uh, Window on the West and of... Uh, herbs and stewed rabbit, which is which are two chapters in the two towers, um, and then basically never again, um, uh, except for when he's in this bitching contest with uh, Denethor in Return of the King. Um, but what we get of their relationship in the books is something that is um, 
probably quite emotionally fraught and complex because um, Faramir is like quite a, like an ideologically um, uh, <laughs> loud person, and, and Boromir is quite uh, um, not in debt, but like uh, like quite content with the the status quo of Gondor, um, and is not so much of an ideologue. Um, and it is interesting to me that Tolkien never does anything more to beef up their relationship um, because it means that in light of all of this additional softening of Boromir's character that he does, um, that kind of conflict between um, what who Boromir is and what Boromir stands for narratively and who Faramir is and what Faramir stands for narratively is all the more stark. Boromir, it is a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt over so small a thing. There are lots of movie differences between or for Boromir, uh, and uh, lots of them we're just going to get into through the, the course of dealing with the plot. But one of the ones that I would actually like to talk about, because it, it is quite significant for me um, and my enjoyment of the films, is the essential whitewashing of Gondor. Now, to be clear, <laughs> um, I'm not saying that Tolkien imagined that... Uh, all of the people in Gondor were non-white people. He definitely wasn't doing that. Um, he was just not operating in the kind of like shitty, lazy, and it feels weird for me to say this, but lazy kind of attitude of like late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s racism, which saw like literally sees everything in black and white. Um, for people who uh, don't know what racial politics in Europe are like. First off, congratulations! Congratulations, I'm very <laughs> jealous. Um, but second off, there is a joke that you need a PhD to understand racism in uh, Europe because it's so complex, and because people that look white to um, Americans um, will actually have like a really complex uh, history where they've been oppressed by five million different types of Europeans who have all decided that at various points they're not white. Um, a good example of this is like Polish people who uh, traditionally have been treated incredibly shittily by pretty much everyone in Europe. Um, and Americans will look at Polish people and be like, yes, they're white. Um, whereas uh, racist Brits or racist French people or racist Germans will look at Polish people and be like, they are subhuman. They may as well be black. Um, that is the level of like oddness uh, that um, racism in Europe is operating on. Um that is also the level of like, I hate to call it nuance because like nuance is something that I think of as like generally something quite positive, but there is like a level of like complexity involved in racism in Europe that, that Americans and like Anglosphere, the Anglosphere in like the late 80s, 90s, early 2000s just didn't have. I'm not lamenting, by the way, that change. I'm not like, <laughs> oh, the good old days when racism was more complex. I'm just saying it's a, it's a change that happened. Um, Tolkien uh, talks a lot about uh, Gondor as Byzantium um, and uh, makes a lot of references to uh, seeing uh, Minas Tirith as uh, various points in the Roman Empire, as seeing it uh, um, as various places in the Eastern Roman Empire. He describes all of the Numenorean descent characters uh, with an important caveat there of Eowyn, Eomer, and Theoden, who I'll talk about later, um, as having uh, gray eyes and black hair. Um, none of these characters have black hair in the films. Um, and it was not something that I necessarily thought a huge amount about um, until I was scrolling through some old forums, fan forums, from the 2000s, early, early, early 2000s, where there was a conversation between like these book fans who were being, to be fair, quite sanctimonious, um, and film fans about uh, 
Gondor. Um, and the book fans were like, well, it's fucking crazy that all of these guys are like strawberry blondes and, you know, all look like white English guys when in reality they're all meant to be black hair and have black hair and look, you know, probably quite like if if not Turkish as in like uh, like Constantinople, Istanbul, uh, then at least look not like Anglo-Saxon Brits. Um was going on there and all of the film fans or I shouldn't say all of the film fans but many of the film fans saying actually it's a good thing they don't have black hair because black hair is something I associate with villains um which is to me like revealing in a lot of ways um and I actually think also hits the nail on the head because who is the only character in these films who has black hair uh Denethor um and it is one of these things where I'm like, you know, I'm not saying that it's necessarily inherently racist, but I do think there is kind of this level of like um, whitewashing in terms of we need everything to appeal to what um, Americans and British people think of as their like ideal beauty standard um, and to not deviate from that, even though there is this like more intense complexity in terms of like diversity and appearance um, in, well, you know, in the rest of the world um, and uh, Americans in particular post, uh, well, really, really post 1860s have a very particular set of beauty standards that is uh, in a lot of ways quite closely aligned to this kind of blonde haired, blue eyed. Uh, I don't want to use like any words that are too <laughs> intense, but like blonde haired, blue eyed, uh, white people look. Um, and any deviation from that has this air of like it is foreign and it is therefore villainous. Um, and so I do think it is like this is me harping on a lot about literally them just not dying Sean Bean's wig. But I do think there is like, you know, to do like Slavoj Žižek voice, like some ideology here. <laughs> um, and there's there are some interesting cultural contexts at work, um, especially given that literally every character, every actor on screen uh, bar like two is wearing a wig anyways why is it that they've chosen these color wigs and you know to to have these very specific anglo-saxon like aesthetic cues instead of the like more byzantine ones that tolkien's calling out that's a significant change basically uh so this goes hand in hand for me as well for uh one of the 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 sort of interesting changes between the books and the films which is that uh in the movies uh boromir is a kind of given a villain's intro um, and there is there is uh, a playing up of his conflict with Aragorn um, that isn't necessarily there at all in the books. Um, for example, the Gondor needs has no king, needs no king line that I was praising to Thy Evans earlier is not just not in the book, but that whole underlying conflict basically doesn't exist um, in the books. Um, uh, Boromir finds out that Aragorn is who he is. He's the heir of Isildur, come to claim the throne of Gondor um, at the Council of Elrond in the exact same place, and basically shrugs it off in favor of being like, okay, like that's nice, do what you will, but the ring, though. Um, and his concern, he's more single-mindedly fascinated by and, and, and interested by uh, the potential of this tool or this weapon to use against the enemy. To him, it doesn't necessarily matter if Aragorn has come to claim the throne or not, he doesn't really care. Uh, whereas in the movies, <laughs> as we will talk about a lot, no doubt, uh, it is played up considerably more. Yeah. And one, uh, I'll get to my spiel here in a second, but another thing I was thinking about is we have such little time with Denethor, pretty much just uh, reserved to the, you know, last two thirds of the last movie and probably even just a third of that because, you know, he comes and then he goes in 
dramatic fashion, but I wonder how much of it is knowing where they were going with their characterization of Denethor to kind of give, you know, beef Boromir up in his villainy, so to speak, just so that'll easily translate to John Noble's character when he appears over in Return of the King. But uh, something, you know, we've been talking about for a while now is Boromir is definitely punched up in his villainy, which might not be the right word. You know, antagonism might be more accurate. Uh, and he's more of an internal antagonist in the fellowship to both Frodo and as a cautionary tale for Aragorn if he were not to let uh, the ring go. His attempt to take the ring from Frodo plays as the reason Frodo leaves, and his encounter with Frodo is played opposite of Aragorn just right after that scene, uh, letting Frodo go on his own and make for Mordor. And I'm not looking for anyone to be on my side here, but I am generally just fine with choices like this or say like the choice to make Gimli and Pippin comic relief though like most everything it sometimes plays better than at other times ultimately the film has only so many tools to heighten or diffuse tension and sometimes the creative team has to sacrifice say characterization to better fuel the cinematic experience especially with these films being crafted as blockbusters meant for mass audiences who perhaps are a little less familiar with Tolkien's books all that said, I do think it works because unlike the books, we do get to see Boromir's redemption. And a quick aside, I don't really like how we talk about redemption and redemption arc in fiction these days, but I'm just kind of using it here as shorthand. In the text, Aragorn comes across Boromir's dying body surrounded by many dead orcs. The films actually allow us to glimpse this moment, one last act of heroism, as Boromir recovers from his ensorcelment by the ring to protect Merry and Pippin for a time before, you know, Lurtz comes and sticks him with some arrows and other Urukai take him away. Yeah, no, I literally cannot agree with you enough about this. Um, I think this is one of my uh, favorite changes in terms of Fellowship of the Ring books to films, um, because because you're right. Like it it it, it gives Boromir, I think, the death that is befitting Boromir. Um, and I think maybe maybe there is like a conversation to be had about like why Tolkien decides to not show like this bloody death given his like personal experience as someone in the trenches but i think like in terms of assessing these films as what they are which is films um and given the con the cultural context um that they they come from and that they're operating in i think seeing someone get effectively gunned down in slow motion giving up his life for uh, two people that he barely knows um, is just a really remarkable and emotionally affecting way of uh, playing up the kind of uh, like be beautiful terror, I guess, of warfare. Um, and even if that like sort of underlying um, psychological impact of like war uh, is is maybe not dealt with as like completely or as like, comprehensively as I would have hoped for, I think that scene in particular is uh, just a really intense um, and uh, uh, fitting way to deal with Boromir and to deal with something that is treated uh, quite differently in in the books. So yeah, like I, I totally agree with you, um, and and also I agree with you on the. <laughs> redemption arc nonsense but yeah it is nice to see Boromir kind of uh not come down off of his high horse I don't want to like accuse him of being arrogant but to kind of put aside the like larger scale politics for a bit to to take a look at you know the little folk really um and it is uh, yeah it's it's beautiful <laughs> Mm -hmm. and that's just one of the many major film moments Boromir has in just really one half of one movie 
Um, I'm going to mention some of them. Emily, feel free to chime in if you want to add, but we will probably go into all of these in depth when we get to them properly in our recap coverage. Um, the, maybe the most popular one is the one does not simply walk into Mordor line, which has been meme to high heaven. Uh, they have a cave troll, which is perhaps the most notable line in Moria. It's not really, but I think it's one just everyone remembers and the kind of like the sad resigned fuck we have to do this kind of tone that Sean Bean delivers that in, I think is great. Um, following the death of Gandalf, um, he is the one who, uh, when Aragorn is trying to get everyone up to move on to Lothlorien, uh, Boromir is the one that says, give them a moment for pity's sake, which is a line they could have honestly given to any remaining member of the fellowship just to like show, Hey, let them grieve for a second. But I really like the choice to give it to Boromir, who, as we've discussed, is more quote unquote villain coded than everyone else, um, in the fellowship is. Um, he has a really touching scene with Aragorn and Lothlorien, one that kind of grows on me every time I see it, just because of how Sean Bean specifically plays it. Um, his despair, his sadness, the slightest bit of hope when he s- sees that Aragorn might be someone who can help save Gondor. And he goes on and on about the sons of Gondor have returned and the trumpets uh, heralding their arrival. Um, I don't want to get into it too much right now, but it is something that we'll talk about in depth when we get to that part of the movie. And then, as we've already discussed, his attempt to take the ring from Frodo and his death um, are both iconic, considered you know, some of the best scenes in cinema this past century, um, or so far this century, rather. I think one of the things as well that um, really sticks out for me about all of these scenes is that um, Boromir, um, more so than any of the other characters, is essentially modeling for Aragorn uh, what Aragorn needs to grow to become, but with a slightly more like moral uh, uh, take on it. Um, and so, you know, Boromir is constantly stopping to remember like Merry and Pippin, and he's constantly stopping to look to see kind of the the like smaller uh, parts of the wider whole. Um, but is still also seeing the wider whole. And at this point, Aragorn is kind of only able to do one or the other on a binary. He's not able to marry the two together in the same way that, that Boromir is. And and that is just one of the, I think one of the really beautiful and like uh, fascinating bits of, of how Boromir is played in these films as this kind of quieter foil to Aragorn. One of the, or probably perhaps the most associated or significant prop associated with Boromir is the Horn of Gondor. And we've spent plenty of time already this episode talking about horns. We even titled this episode The Horn of Gondor. Um, we only see it blown at Parth Galen in the films uh, when he's calling for aid, when the Urukai are swarming around him and Merry and Pippin. And then we'll see it pop up again in Return of the King. Um, Denethor will have it in his lap when Gandalf and Pippin arrive. Um, not to console him, but, you know, he's deep in sorrow at that time. And there's also um, a couple appearances that uh, Boromir has in the extended editions in The Two Towers and Return of the King. Um, he is not shown uh, in the theatrical editions of either of those movies, though um, he is name-dropped in both and his presence is felt, especially in relation to Faramir and Denethor. In the Two Towers, there is an extended edition scene at Asgiliath, which is not the Asgiliath battle that uh, Emily went over earlier. I, too, have a problem with the scene, and I'm glad that Emily does, um, just because I want to get everyone anti-extended editions uh, (laughs) before the end of this podcast is over. And then he has a really, really small appearance in Return of the King. It's basically a delusion that Denethor has where he sees uh, Boromir behind 
uh, Faramir, like kind of just like a vision or apparition. <laughs> um, it's kind of, it kind of looks goofy. I don't, it fits with the general aesthetic of these films, but it's one of those things I'm like, if this was in the theatrical edition, I think they would have cleaned up this shot just a little bit more because it does look a little bit hokey. Um, it's also one of the few like delusions that are really shown in the film. So maybe that's why it sticks out as kind of awkward to me um, yeah. of him envisioning just some guy that isn't actually there. Yup. It's a take. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen his Aragorn? White town of a Cthulhuan, glimmering like a spike of pearl and silver. Its banners caught high in the morning breeze. been called home by the clear ringing of silver trumpets. So let's wrap up by talking about the actor behind Boromir, Sean Bean, or Seen Bean, or Sean Bon, as everyone likes to joke, <laughs> was actually properly named S-H-A-U-N Bean at birth, which occurred in Handsworth in England. He would take the Irish spelling of his name, S-E-A-N, around 1983 or 84 when he was first breaking through as a stage performer. Bean actually dreamed of being a football player, or soccer for us U.S. folks, but he suffered an accident smashing into glass at an early age, with glass being stuck in his leg and affecting his ability to walk. After some experimentation with other arts and craft work in college, he would eventually earn a scholarship to the Royal Academic of Dramatic Art, starting coursework there in 1981. His professional debut would be on stage, and he became famous for his roles in various Shakespearean plays, such as Tybalt in Romeo and Juliet, before joining the Royal Shakespeare Company proper. His first film appearance was Caravaggio in 1986, which also included Baby Tilda Swinton among its cast. From here, I'm going to leave his Wikipedia history and start getting into my own history with Mr. Bean. Our Meet Cute was in 1995's Golden Eye, which to this day remains both my favorite Bond film and just simply one of my favorite films. And Sean Bean is perhaps the biggest reason for that, as he stole the show as the film's big bad, Alec Trevelyan, former MI6 agent codenamed 006. What's the matter, James? No glib remark? No pithy comeback? Much like Christopher Lee in his 007 turn as the man with the golden gun, Sean's 006 was played as an equal to James Bond, perhaps a mirror of the uglier side of the character. In GoldenEye, 006 plays a turncloak, someone who once was an ally and best friend to James Bond before betraying him. As this was his biggest role prior to The Lord of the Rings, I can see the film producers trading on that 006 character as Boromir, while not a villain, is an ally that ends up almost betraying Frodo and the Fellowship. But going back to 1995, this is also when I started watching a lot more movies and started watching movies not geared towards children. My favorite actor back then was, of course, Harrison Ford, because Star Wars, Indiana Jones, yada yada, and this led me to his other films such as The Fugitive and his role as Jack Ryan in the Tom Clancy adaptations. Here, I stumbled across Sean Bean in Patriot Games, where he plays an Irish Republican terrorist with a personal vendetta against Ford's Jack Ryan. While I do love those early Tom Clancy films, this, there's little denying they function as American exceptionalist cinema. The other film I found him in prior to The Lord of the Ring was 1998's Ronin, an extremely underrated action film with leading men Robert De Niro and Jean Reno. Bean only is a secondary character here, appearing in the first act as pretty much a dunce and a poser, but I still took note of the dude as he always commands attention. 
This pretty much gets us to Fellowship and his role as Boromir, which is why we're doing this episode. He will obviously be a big part of our coverage for the back half of Fellowship, as both a member of the team, but also the source of inner strife, played up as an antagonist of sorts to Frodo, and opposite to Aragorn. We will, of course, talk to his performance in individual moments as we continue on with the story, and as mentioned of the theatrical cuts, he only appears in Fellowship, but is in extended editions for both The Two Towers and Return of the King. He's appeared in so many other things across films, TV, and video games that we could really go on forever. National Treasure, Percy Jackson, Troy, The Martian are just some of the bigger films he would perform in after his stint as Boromir. Of course, I have one more role I want to focus on because you know who I am and what I love. That would be his role of Eddard, patriarch of House Stark in HBO's Game of Thrones. When showrunners David Benioff and D.B. Wise got the show greenlit, they had only two roles already picked out, Peter Dinklage as Tyrion Lannister and Sean Bean as Eddard Stark. Game of Thrones owes a lot to the Lord of the Rings films, just as uh, A Song of Ice and Fire does to the Lord of the Rings books. And Bean's performance as Boromir surely was why D&D had him in mind for Ned Stark. In that role, Bean had to properly convey the mixture of sadness, courage, and stalwartness that defined the Warden of the North. He essentially acts as the first season's main character before his death at the hands of Joffrey Baratheon and maybe some other conspirators. Sorry, I know this isn't a Game of Thrones pod, but I feel like there's room for a little more. His performance as Ned is still considered among the best on the show, a show that has no lack of great performances. His scenes against Mark Addy's Robert Baratheon, Maisie Williams' Arya Stark, and sword fighting with Jaime Lannister stand out as highlights. Some of the show's most memorable lines were delivered by him, and I'll drop some right here. Look at me. You're a Stark of Winterfell. You know our words. Winter's coming. You were born in the long summer. You've never known anything else. But now winter is truly coming, and in the winter, we must protect ourselves, look after one another. The death of Ned Stark, or Boromir, or 006 speak to Sean Bean's lasting legacy in our pop cultural zeitgeist, the guy who dies. Sean Bean's characters, for whatever reason, just seem destined to die, and well, he's pretty damn good at it. The death of Boromir was great enough to give this podcast its name, and the death of Ned Stark on the steps of the Great Sept of Baylor remains the most perfectly executed scene in that HBO show. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that um, makes me laugh because the uh, role that I know Sean Bean best for is not one in which he dies. It's um, Sharp um, in Sharp's Rifles, um, which is like a very, very old, uh, very rock and roll kind of uh, BBC. I say very, very old. It's like the 90s. Uh, <laughs> BBC t- series of movies um, about the Napoleonic Wars. They're based on books. Um, but uh, you can kind of, if you go back and watch it, you can definitely see some like proto Boromir. But um, uh, Sean Bean plays a, a lower class, working class ish guy who is raised up the ranks of the uh, British uh, military during the Napoleonic Wars uh, and all of his trials and tribulations therein. Um, and a lot of this plays off of like what working class affectations are and how um, class is dealt with in. Um, the UK um, and how working class people are treated in the UK, um, especially as they kind of rise up the ranks of power, um, which is interesting for a variety of reasons, um, not the least of which is, I think, one of the most apparent things about Sean Bean, which is that he never gets rid of his accent. 
Um, so he's from Yorkshire, um, and uh, his uh, accent is very, very significant. Um, it, it is uh, for people in the UK, uh, accents tend to say quite a lot because there are a litany of regional accents all across um, the UK. You can drive 20, 10 miles in any direction and have a very, very new one, uh, and there, it, that accent will tell you lots about uh, the place that you're in. Um, and his decision to not ever mask or get rid of his accent um, is something that is quite significant in, in British theatre and in British cinema because it's not really the done thing. Um, if you have a, an accent that marks you out as um, like stereotypically or like obviously working class, uh, the the like edifices of um, British entertainment uh, will uh, either make you mask it um, or uh, shoehorn you into a very specific kind of role, um, which tends to be like working class dolt really um or playing the fucking orcs um in in uh, the two towers um and that's really it um and so he's played a lot of these really significant magisterial roles these these roles of a huge amount of nobility and power and significance um and never shirked that accent at, and that is quite a significant thing um and i think that the significance of that is hard for me to divorce um from his politics as as a human being um, which I uh, find fascinating and um, because, um, you know, far from doing the kind of lazy or oh, everybody in the North votes Labour, which just isn't true, um, Sean Bean has positioned himself very much on the Labour left. Um, he has expressed support for um, Tony Benn, who is kind of one of these like seminal figures of the the labor left uh it's it's it would be i can't i can't really like explain him in a short amount of time without doing a significant disservice to his legacy but he is of the left and significant of the left um sean bean also uh, endorsed jeremy corbyn um several times uh, at a point um, at which it was not just um deeply unpopular to do so but also sort of a a potential death now for your career. Um, and I'm trying to say this in, in a way that doesn't sound as conspiratorial as it's going to come across to Americans who I think maybe aren't as aware of like how deeply uh, toxic the environment is here for the left in the UK, uh, but to come out in support of uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, as a public figure was essentially asking for uh, a massive target to be put on your back. Um, and Sean Bean, Sean Bean endorsed him several times and had lots of you know, good and nice things to say about him, uh, which is good, <laughs> which is a very good thing, um, and shows a level of, like, political courage and commitment that you do not often get from, like, turbocharged British actors like that. Um, but he's also been, like, a very committed trade unionist, uh, and that is also something uh, worth uh, heralding. Um, and, and as I was just double-checking to see when the last time he uh, endorsed Corbyn was, um, I came across an article in the New Statesman, which is, like, a leftish uh, newspaper. I was going to call it a rag. It's not a rag. It's, like, quite eyebrow um, here in the UK. Um, but the intro to <laughs> this article is... Um, Sean Bean is having a vape and an espresso in the Palazzo Medici. Um, uh, it says nothing about his politics, but by God, what a vibe. I wish that were me. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I, lo I love the man even more. I, I was for the, re you know, things we've already discussed, this film and the other stuff he's been in. He's always been one of my favorite actors. And to find out that he's a left-wing king is really great. His paternal grandfather, Harold Bean Jr., was a noted pacifist, uh, which also ties it into some of the themes of Lord of the Rings, which I really enjoy. Um, the accent thing is kind of fun because um, going back to the Game of Thrones thing, he kind of 
because, you know, uh, the Stark family is from the North, and he kind of laid down the template of what the Northern accent is for that show, in that every other actor who's a Stark or a Snow basically is trying to mimic Sean Bean's affectation uh, just to uh, kind of create some kind of regional coherency. I have a terrible um, ear for accents. I also have a terrible eye for wigs. I, I am not <laughs> going to be able to help on any of those fronts when talking about cinema, but um, I do like that they patterned after him, and, you know, the politics we discussed, the North, I mean, he's Northern aristocracy, but the North are viewed as a little bit more yeoman and a little less like obsessed with like, you know, all the fancies of court, so to speak. Um, so to kind of have that double, you know, kind of boil down just from the fact that Sean Bean has this very specific accident that he doesn't get away from. I think it really works at a meta level that I had never really considered before. So thank you for enlightening me on that. Yeah, no, there's also like, I mean, I'm going to not get into it too much but i think there's also like quite an interesting gendering of it as well um because so far as i can remember i don't think they have sophie turner and um uh anya williams do northern accents in the same way um, and there is like and, and i will talk about this loads and when we get to the two towers and the orcs and the way that the orcs sound um but there is definitely like a gendering of the north um and like a defeminization, I would say almost of like what the North is, or like a hypermasculinization, um, which is why I find it really um, uh, affecting and interesting and significant when like Sean Bean as a character gets to do a lot of these softer, more paternal roles, or when he gets to be like very soft and emotional at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, because that is not typically like an emotional affectation that um, people with Northern accents, really uh, Northern working class accents, really are ever allowed to perform. Um, at least in as far as like British cinema is concerned. Um, and, and I always think that is like, uh, well done, Sean, for forcing them to let that happen. That, that, that rocks. Yes, here's to you, Sean Bean. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I've been working on, which, hey, Manuclear Bomb, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me on Twitter at JRRTweedon. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. <laughs>